would higher education look like in a world where true lifelong learning, people engaging in education or training at many points throughout their lives, was the norm? Hello, and welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, and your host. I'm pleased to be back in your AirPods or on your car stereo if you're commuting. And a quick thanks to Ashley Malreader for her excellent work on the Voices of Student Success episodes of The Key these last few weeks. Today's episode features a conversation with Mauro Guillen, the William H. Worcester Professor of Multinational Management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of The Perennials, The Mega Trends Creating a Post-Generational Society. The Perennials isn't a higher ed book per se. It's about larger social and societal changes that might affect how we work, learn, and live. But the trends it describes, people living longer and healthier lives, and technological changes that shorten the half-life of our knowledge and skills, have huge implications for institutions and learners alike. And it was put on my radar screen by Mark Milliron, the president of National University, who made it a signed reading for his leadership team at a recent monthly meeting. Before we start today's discussion, here's a word from the sponsor of the next few episodes of The Key, Course Dog, whose technology platform helps colleges and universities manage their academic operations. This episode is sponsored by Course Dog. Driving student success requires a solid foundation for your academic operations. Assessing courses, managing curriculum, publishing the catalog, and optimizing course schedule. With CourseDog's academic operations platform, you can do it all in one cloud solution that integrates with your ICIS. Stop struggling with spreadsheets and tools that don't talk with each other. Empower your team today with CourseDog. Visit coursedog.com slash IHE to learn more. Now on to my conversation with Mauro Guillen. Mauro, welcome to The Key and thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Doug, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Can you start by giving our audience a brief description of what perennials are and what you mean by uh, the term post-generational society that is in your subtitle? Perennials are people who don't think and they don't act their age. Uh, They are people who can go into learning mode or into working mode interchangeably, not according to their age at that moment in their lives. And the post-generational society has a recognition that... um, we are not really people who belong to generations. Again, we are ageless, and we can do different kinds of things at different ages without having to pay tribute to the stereotypes that we have been for too long uh, abiding to. So perennials are people who defy the stereotypes that much of society clings to. Um, Before we go too far in describing how those stereotypes might be starting to be defied, can you go back and tell us maybe how those stereotypes got set in the first place? So if you remember 140 years ago, two big innovations came out of Europe. So the first one was that people were required to go to school. Uh, It was called universal schooling. Then the second thing was that first in Germany, industrial workers were promised a pension after a certain age. So when those two innovations came into being, then essentially that divided up our lives into four different stages. First we would play, then we would go to school, then we would work, and finally we would be in retirement. So that is a kind of you know rigid, stage-driven kind of life that the perennial mindset and the post-generational society is supposed to change. How far along the continuum are we, uh, let's say, in the United States toward a post-generational society? Is this already clearly in motion? Is it still pretty prospective? 
So we are moving very slowly towards that. We're only at the beginning of that transition. So consider, for example, lifelong learning is a very recent phenomenon. But we already have in the United States about uh, 30% of the population um, above the age of uh, 20 who is now engaged in some type of learning, most of them online. So things have changed over the last 10 or 15 years, but it's still a relatively small proportion of the entire population uh, who is really doing that. And the same goes for you know transitions, let's say, from work to retirement and back. So we have significant numbers of people who go into retirement and then they realize this is not for me, so they go back to work. Uh, so we are seeing, I think, the beginnings of this transition, uh, but there's a long road ahead of it. Before we delve too much into the significance of these trends for lifelong learning and education and training, please tell our listeners about the trends and forces that, in your view, are bringing about the need to move in the direction you envision. These forces that I'm about to tell you are larger than us, so we cannot chase them. So one of them is that we live longer than in the past. But not only that, the other very important thing, Doug, is that we not only live longer, we also stay in good mental and physical shape much longer than in the past. So this concept of old and young, this idea that somebody who turns 60 is already an old person, that is something from the distant past. That is no longer the situation today. And by the way, you know, this whole debate about the presidential election now uh, is, I think, from my point of view, really completely misplaced because somebody in their 70s or even 80s is a totally different person from somebody of the same age 50 or 60 years ago, right? The fact that we're living longer, the fact that uh, we stay healthy longer, means that we have more years to not only enjoy life, but also to work and perhaps to pursue different careers. I think that's also where we're going to see in the future, in the near future, which is that people are going to start by being something and working in some, in some area, and then switching because their preferences uh, shift. Uh, so, for example, we've never had in the United States so many people in medical school who are in their 40s. It's astounding. People who are 45 years old or 48 years old, and they've now decided to become doctors. This is refreshing. This is wonderful, right? Because again, life is getting very long. That's one thing. The other big trend that um, you know we have to keep in mind is technology. So the biggest impact of technology on our lives right now is that uh, it makes whatever skills we have obsolete very fast. So in other words, as individuals, then we have to reinvent ourselves several times because we learn something, and then new technology essentially makes that knowledge obsolete or antiquated. So it's essentially those two forces. We're living longer, we stay healthy longer, and technology is making whatever it is that we have as skills, as knowledge, obsolete much faster. Some of this is already happening, of course, but are we still a long ways away from a post-generational society? What kind of time frame do you see this unfolding over? Is it decades or years? Oh, I think it's going to be much less than decades, probably 10 to 15 years. Some organizations are changing very fast. Others are not. I think the ones that are changing very slowly are especially universities like my own, the University of Pennsylvania, where we continue to do what the universities have done for the longest time, which is that first we classify people into age groups and then we offer them different kinds of degrees, right? So we have undergraduates, we have graduate students, we have executives and so on and so forth. But uh, digital platforms are just doing the opposite. They're not classifying people to age groups. They're actually bringing learners from different stages in life into the same platform, and they're learning together. So I think, again, uh, some uh, organizations are moving very, very quickly towards this uh, future that I envision. 
and others are moving more slowly. And the same, by the way, that goes for companies. Some companies, especially technology firms, younger firms, uh, they're very much already telling their employees, you have to be a lifelong learner, right? Unfortunately, as you know, other more established companies, larger companies, whenever an employee turns 15 years old, they start to look for ways to get rid of that employee. So again, as I said earlier, we have a long road ahead of us, but there are some organizations that are changing very quickly, and I think they're going to be the pioneers in all of this. The scenario uh, you described is essentially an argument uh, for the need for the embrace of lifelong learning. There's been a lot of rhetoric over the last five to 10 years, a lot of conversation about the need for institutions to uh, provide lifelong learning and opportunity also. But I think a, a lot more words than than action and, and changes in behavior as I look at the landscape. So when you think about it and, and you know, you're at a place like Penn that you described as sort of tending to still operate largely in a way that acknowledges the stages, but thinking about the great variety of institutions in the higher ed landscape, what are the most significant ways you would envision institutions and, and higher ed as a whole needing to change to participate well and drive in this direction as opposed to kind of dragging its feet? What are the changes that are required for an institution to be well positioned for this trend? As human beings, we are learners. The human being always has the desire to learn new things. But you see, since 140 years ago or so, what we have been told is that there's only a few years in our lives during which we're supposed to learn. And that's when we're young. And then you're supposed to work. And by the way, most Americans have a job that they hate. But we're nonetheless told, keep on working because you need to make some money. And save money because uh, you will get your reward at the end, which is retirement. So that concept, that model, is completely at odds with human nature. It's completely unnatural because we are learners by definition. So what is standing in the way? That's the nature of your question, really. What are the obstacles? The obstacles are us. It's a mindset that we have inherited from the past. It's all those assumptions that, yes, we only learn when we're young, and then we've got to work, and we've got to save money, hoping that then one day we will retire, and then we will be able to enjoy life. That's what we have to break it. That is the single biggest obstacle. The single biggest obstacle is in our minds, is in the culture, and it's in the kinds of policies that both the government and major organizations, especially companies, have been using for the longest time. Those are the things that have to change because those are the obstacles. This episode is sponsored by CourseDog. Driving student success requires a solid foundation for your academic operations. Assessing courses, managing curriculum, publishing the catalog, and optimizing course schedule. With CourseDog's academic operations platform, you can do it all in one cloud solution that integrates with your SIS. Stop struggling with spreadsheets and tools that don't talk with each other. Empower your team today with CourseDog. Visit coursedog.com slash IHE. To learn more. You're listening to The Key Inside Higher Ed's News and Analysis Podcast. I'm joined today by Mauro Guillen, Professor of Management at the University of Pennsylvania and author of The Perennials. Here's the rest of our conversation. With social movements like this, what tends to change first? I'm guessing that individual behavior starts to change before institutions do, since we know that institutions are pretty sort of small-c conservative when it comes to adapting what they do. 
Exactly, and there's a lot of inertia. But you see, there's a lot of inertia both on the part of individuals and on the part of organizations such as companies or governments. So here's how I know for a fact that this is what's going to happen. And I know because history tells us that this is exactly what happens all the time, which is invariably you will get a few individuals, maybe just a handful of them, and you will get a few companies or governments switch gears. They will see the light. They will think, oh my goodness, we're on the wrong track. And then you know what's going to happen? That they're going to be much more effective at whatever they do, because this system that I'm suggesting will lead to higher productivity and more creativity. Research already indicates this. And then the dynamic of competition in the market, so competition among governments, competition among companies, that's going to do the rest of the job. Once the pioneering companies show that there is a better way, then everybody else will have no option but to follow sheep because competition in the market. And of course, you may be wondering, how am I so sure? Well, I'm very sure because, see, I believe in the market as a mechanism to organize our lives. And the dynamic of the market is just too powerful. Nobody can go against it. Once again, as I said, a few companies, a few individuals demonstrate that this is a better way, then everybody else would have to. There are a, a set of institutions in higher education that have pretty clearly embraced this idea that learning happens across a lifetime. It's Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, mm -hmm. uh, National University in California, these very large, heavily online institutions that have adapted the way they provide their learning and and made a bunch of changes so that they can serve people who are currently working and trying to change their careers and have average ages in the 30s as opposed to exactly 19 right. or 20. Some of those places have gotten quite large and, and those might be those early movers that in this realm that you were describing. To pivot a bit, there's a tendency, a, a fairly destructive one, I think, to position education and training as oppositional. You either come to a campus for four years or some period of time and engage in studies that are mostly about learning and only secondarily about preparing you for a job versus a much more vocational orientation. How does the shift you're talking about where people are learning throughout their lives, presumably for shorter periods at a stretch or without leaving the workforce at all, affect? that binary approach. Yeah, so you just uh, mentioned, I think, uh, the key characteristic of most of our educational institutions, which is that they're very rigid. They only offer one way of learning. And as you said, it's very intensive. You have to be there for a number of years. And they don't really contemplate this other idea in which maybe you want to be a learner throughout your life. And maybe you want to take off, uh, you know, a couple of weeks a year uh, to go back into learning mode. But the traditional providers of education don't cater to that kind of more frequent, you know, preference among people, right? But that, that, it's not only that, it's also companies. You see, companies these days, they're trying very hard to remain competitive, right? And as you know, we are in the knowledge economy. So having employees who are really, really good at what they do is key, right? But you cannot hope that they will learn everything they will need for the rest of their lives by age 25. So companies are also demanding this new flexibility and this new adaptability on the part of their employees. But once again, the problem is that traditional educational institutions don't offer solutions to that. That is the problem. You see what I'm saying? So you have all of these competitive pressures out there that we all feel. But uh, so far, it's only some digital platforms that are offering the kind of lifelong learning that we need, as opposed to the traditional format 
which is, you know, come to my university to Penn, for example, for four years. Right? It's interesting. The platforms you mentioned as pioneering in this space, I assume we're talking about the Courseras and edX's of the world, were built to a large extent using educational content provided by the traditional institutions that are lagging. Uh, the institutions are playing in that space through those platforms as opposed to on their own. Do you see an opportunity or should there be strategies for individual institutions to be providers of lifelong learning themselves? And if so, what would that look like? What kinds of changes would be required at a place that is operated in that traditional sphere? What I see is experimentations. So you have, for example, pre-existing platforms such as LinkedIn, launching LinkedIn learning. Uh, you have other platforms you mentioned Coursera, which essentially works with universities or with faculty at universities. So we see all of these different kinds of experiments going on, and we see a lot of trial by error. Uh, so we haven't yet figured out what is the best way to organize that offer. So we are in this phase in which uh, essentially you have uh, a lot of disruption, and we see that uh, there's uh, a lot of different kinds of entrepreneurial ventures that are being launched. We still don't know which is going to be the model that actually works well. Because typically, just considering general innovation, right? Typically what happens is that you always go through this period of revolution, right? Where different kinds of people are trying out different kinds of things. And eventually, as I said earlier, the dynamic of the market, of the competitive market, will select the things that work best. I think one of the fundamental problems with our educational institutions right now is that they assume that there's only one type of learner. And so they come up with, a, in their view, the best possible educational program for that type of person. And people have different learning styles. People uh, like, some people like to learn online, other people like to learn face-to-face, -face, and so on and so forth. So I think this revolution that we're going through, where you see all of these different kinds of new experiments in education being launched, that will have a very positive impact because then people with different learning styles will naturally gravitate towards those providers of uh, education, lifelong education, that fit their preferences. That's very good. That is the beauty of the market. The market doesn't impose one model on everybody, right? In fact, one of the great things about the market is that there's product differentiation. So there are different uh, educational offerings now. I guess some of them are really good. Others are not so good. So the mechanism of the market will help us eliminate those that are not good, and it will make those that are really good, innovative, grow. That's what we need. We need more of this experimentation. It's going to take a while. So keep it five for 10 years, and I think we're going to be in a completely different situation in which you know, providers of education will have figured out what is the best way of providing light longer? When there is talk of disruption, that usually means some places adapt and, and some don't. When I look at the challenges or the, or the sort of situation facing the 3,000, 4,000 colleges and universities, we know we're about to enter a period where the number of, again, traditional age students using the old, the old framing of students at different stages, that population is about to shrink. It's been shrinking and it's, we're about to have another decade of, of decline in the number of 18, number of 18 year olds. And the best opportunity is doing what what you're talking about, which is recognizing that there are learners at all different ages and stages who can be the consumers of what colleges offer if they change <laughs> change their offerings in ways and change their delivery models, et cetera. Do you believe that there will be 
significant loss in the number of providers? Do you think there will be? Yeah. And that's just the nature of the market. The mechanism of the market will eliminate those who are offering what people want. Mm -hmm. And let me be clear also. I think a lot of people, a lot of educators, perhaps including myself, will lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. They don't adapt to this. See, for me as an educator right now, one of the big priorities for me is to learn these new technologies, is to adapt to this, because I know that's the future. And if I don't adapt, then I would deserve to lose my job. And this is, this is coming. And it has come so many uh, other times in history, recent history, when there was a big innovation, a big disruption. Right. So this is also going to happen. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs, and new educators, new teachers, are going to you know, be doing better than, than uh, uh, others. And they're going to you know, be very effective and they're going to have uh, great jobs or great opportunities. That is the mechanism of the market and that is innovation. That's how it works. If you remember, Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, once said, it's all about creative destruction. You have creativity, you have innovation. That necessarily destroys at the same time that it creates. That is what makes the market such a great way of organizing the economy and organizing the society. And this is going to happen in the education sector, which, as we have been discussing, has been sheltered from this kind of competition and disruption for too long. How do you think about the, the continued role of physical campuses, of physical spaces? Will there continue to be demand for that? Or do you think that is going to be one of the disruptions, is the uh, decline of, of physical campuses? No, I think, I think people will still want to have a you know, life-transforming experience uh, when they are 16, 17, 18 years old and go to campus. Uh, however, the campus is not just going to be a physical space. I think about it as something that will be in the future at the intersection of physical space, also remote learning, and perhaps also the metaverse. Right? So all of those things are going to be converging. And students, even when they are on campus, they're going to have a three-dimensional experience. It's going to be physical, but it's also going to be a remote because they may, maybe they will take some classes remote along with the students from other parts of the world. And I think there's also going to be the metaverse. There's going to be this virtual reality, right? Uh, that I think has great potential for education. You know, we have at all disposal now technologies that enable us to not just learn about the Roman Empire from books, but also from immersive experiences. So just imagine people in a classroom wearing the latest uh, model of uh, those, uh, you know, glasses that immerse you in virtual reality and being able to walk in ancient Rome along with the professional rest of the class. That's where we're going. That is the future. And it is a future that I think is going to bring us far better learning outcomes because I completely believe that immersive learning is so much better than traditional learning. We talked about disruption and what might be lost. I'm assuming that this vision, if and when it comes to pass, will actually result in expansion of learning opportunity to more people. Do you envision the sort of amount of learning to greatly to be exponentially larger, potentially, because people will be doing it throughout their lives? Yeah, exactly. And it will be more flexible learning. But most importantly, Doug, it will be learning that will be adjusted to the needs of the moment. The fundamental problem with uh, the educational system that exists today is that we're teaching students today the skills that we think they're going to need for the next 40 years. 
And that would be okay if nothing changed. But when we know that things are changing uh, from one day to the next, how can we possibly, you know, come up with a curriculum that would last for 40 years? You see what I'm saying? This is a problem, right? The problem is that we need an educational system and a curriculum that is so much more flexible, that is so much more attuned to the changing reality uh, surrounding us. A curriculum that essentially changes with the times in real time. And we need more immersion. We need more experience already. Let me just give you one example. When, when the pandemic started, I uh, had to move all of my classes online, like every class, five of the member platform. And you know what happened? A lot of the students loved because I could be so much more up to date. I could bring in guest speakers from all over the world, right? And not only that, you know also what happened that something for, for me was revealing. The more introverted the students started to participate more in class. So what I hope that your listeners will uh, grasp is that these new technologies for learning are not inferior to traditional face-to-face in-classroom learning. They can actually be much better. But we still haven't found the formula. That's why we need more experimentation, more trial and error. But they have the potential of actually giving us educational opportunities that are far better than what we've had in the past. But we need to even. That was Mauro Guillen, author of The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. Thanks to him for joining us and to Course Dog for making this episode possible through its sponsorship. I found Guillen's vision of a post-generational society appealing, and not just because I'm getting close to the age where society would previously have been relegating me to the scrap heap. I also think it's exciting to think about a world in which we keep learning and growing and developing throughout our lives, essentially recreating ourselves multiple times. A world in which lifelong learning is the norm presents great opportunity for higher education, I think, especially at a time when we know that the supply of learners on which most colleges and universities have traditionally depended, 18 to 24-year-olds, is soon to be shrinking. Like most such opportunities, though, the scenario also presents plenty of risk for those institutions that do not adapt and could be left behind. In Guillen's telling, there's still time to adapt, but it's measured in years, not decades. That's all for this episode of The Key. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay well and stay safe.